This podcast is brought to you by Gay Hendricks and Carol Klein, the authors of a new book entitled Conscious Luck, Eight Secrets to Intentionally Change Your Fortune. Please listen to podcast number 784, where Gay and Greg speak about how you can seize control of your destiny and create more luck in your life. Gay reveals the eight secrets and provides practical techniques and powerful stories about the author's journeys leading to greater freedom and abundance. If you want to learn more about Conscious Luck, please go to www.consciousluck.com to get your bonus when you order the book. You can also go to www.hendrix.com to learn more about the Hendrix Institute. Thanks for listening and enjoy this great interview with author and coach Gay Hendrix. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Doug, as I do every time I come on these shows, I have to thank the listeners because without those listeners, there would be no show. And over the past 14 years, we've been able to amass a great listening audience for all of you who are joining us from overseas and everywhere. Good day to you. Thank you so much. And joining me from Virginia, is Jay Douglas Holiday, and we're just going to call him Doug. And Doug has a new book out called Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. Good day to you, Doug. How are you doing? Hey, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm in the nation's capital, and don't hold that against me. <laughs> well, we don't. See, and I said Virginia, so I was wrong. How about that? But No, but, you're but right. I, I'm know in you're the suburbs. In the na- I live in McLean which is a suburb of D.C., but it's only about four miles from D.C. All right. Well, good. Well, we won't hold it against you because there's a lot of good work that still has to come out of there, and you're one of the guys that can make that happen. And I'm going <laughs> to let my listeners know a little bit about you. Uh, Doug Holiday is an active private equity investor with holding the uh, position of the Heinz Christian Pretcher executive in residence at the Georgetown University School of Business. He's the founder and director of Path North. And if you want to go there, it's www.pathnorth.com, an organization that promotes discussions of meaning and purpose among leaders and executives. He previously worked at Goldman Sachs in New York and at the White House under the chief of staff, James A. Baker, later serving at the State Department as a Special Ambassador to South Africa. Um, Doug holds degrees from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Princeton Theological Seminary, and Oxford University. And as I said, you can find more about him at pathnorth.com. You can go to him to Twitter at J. Douglas Holiday. That's H-O-L-L-A-D-A-Y. And on Instagram, same thing, J. Douglas or J. Doug Holiday. Uh, you can find him there. We'll put all the links, Doug, for our listeners. But a fascinating book and one that I'm really into. So, you know, when you rethink success, the eight essential practices for finding meaning in work, um, it is where people are going today, especially with this COVID, right? Um, it's really been a wake-up call for people. And, you know, you start the book off with this story about Marcus Pearson, 
who in 2014 sold Minecraft. And for many of my listeners are going to know who Minecraft is, but if you've never done it and you're a younger generation, believe me, it was huge. He sold this for $2.5 billion. And, you know, the point of this story is what should have been a very joyous time. He, he had this huge success, turned out to be a time in his life that became somewhat depressive. Um, and I think this is true for a lot of people, Doug, that get success financially. So mm-hmm. what is it about one reaching tremendous financial success that doesn't bring happiness and meaning into their life? I mean, I, you know, it's like, it's amazing to me that you could have so much success. Yes. On the other hand, it turns into so much despair. Mm. What do you think about that? Yeah. You obviously you, are Greg. the expert on this topic. <laughs> yeah. Great, great question. I, I'd say it this way. The unintended consequences of great notoriety, success, anything, any level of accomplishment, whether you're a CEO of a Fortune 50 company president of the United States, or the principal of a middle school. It's all the same. You get isolated by the very things that others would long to attain. And so I've seen this up close and personal. I remember, I mean, I remember one story, a conversation. I used to stay sometime when I'd go to New York with Lawrence Rockefeller and Mary, his wife, on Fifth Avenue. I remember us drinking a, a bottle of um, great Bordeaux, and I, I turned to Lawrence. I said, Lawrence, so what is it like to be a Rockefeller? So he, he stares at me for a moment. He says, I have this reoccurring dream that I'm in the bottom of a well, and my father and John D. Rockefeller are looking down, and I feel trapped, and they won't help me get out. And he said, I'm trapped by expectations. I'm trapped by my name. And then he said, even we Rockefellers have have um, problems and challenges, but nobody cries crocodile tears for us. And I saw that, you know, I don't care who you are, there that there's this burden of accomplishment and expectations that all come with it. This is why so many children of fabulously wealthy people or accomplished people come off the rails. They just can't compete. They're just they just get devastated by him. I think the other thing, particularly this would apply to men, they don't have a language of connectedness. So many men uh, know how to relate to the world externally and really do well there. But when they retire, sell the business, whatever it is, the suicide rate is off the charts. And part of that is they've never learned to connect with others in meaningful ways. It's always been a transaction. So I think um, I think both these things, the isolation attendant with great success, but also uh, the fact that we have not helped men in particular to learn how to really communicate what they're really feeling and thinking and what, what really matters in life. And And I would concur. I think that the older we get, Hopefully, the more reflective we get, um, the time, the amount of time we spend, because when you're young, growing a family, as you know, you have sons, I have sons, um, you're spending all your time, you, you look, you were on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, you know, high flying, that kind of stuff. When all that changes for you, um, you look at how that helped you. I think most of it was gratitude, helped you to get where you are versus 
oh my gosh, I lost something. You didn't lose anything. You had a great experience of it. And, you know, you tell this, you know, I love this story in your book about this friend of yours, uh, Ted Leononis, who was a huge success. And he had this epiphany moment after a plane flight. I'm going to let you tell it. The plane flight didn't quite go as he expected. <laughs> no. Why don't you tell the brief story? Yeah, because yeah. it really so sets I, I, the I stage the for your book. Con- contrasting Marcus, uh, you know, who sold, as you said, Minecraft for $2.5 billion, who who seemingly was empty and despairing and and was lost. Then another man, equally, you know, who made a lot of money, sold his company to a good friend of mine, Steve Case, who started AOL. At 28, he had made a fabulous amount of money. And here he is on a plane going from Fort Lauderdale to Atlanta. And then the pilot announced that the landing gear was stuck. And he said he had to contemplate for that 20 minutes his life. And he, and he concluded this, if he died, he would not die a contented, satisfied, happy man. And he determined that if he lived, that he would spend the rest of his life reimagining what success is and what meaning is. And that's what he's gone about doing. So two different epiphanies. One changed somebody for the good. The other is still an unfinished story. Yeah, we don't know uh, the what this, the situation is yet with Marcus, but you right. do know about your friend and what's going on there. And, you know, I think you have these eight practices that you talk about, and I think we're going to go through some of them, but it's worth just kind of maybe listing them. You know, what are these practices to finding meaningful life uh, I think our listeners will want to know. We want them to go get the book, obviously. But the point is, is that you have identified, in my estimation, eight practices which will help our listeners really have more meaning and a more fulfilling life, both personally and in their business, just overall. So mm-hmm. can you just yeah. kind of briefly run through those and then we'll go yeah, into them me, in more depth. they are. I, I start out with uh, chapter one, the illusion of success, as we're talking about the unintended uh, result of great success can be emptiness and disconnection. But then the next chapter is knowing your story. Uh, as, as we've talked about, Greg, I, you know, Peter Buffett told me that we're all born into someone else's story. So the powerful drivers in our life is a story we were born into. If you grew up in a raging family where there's a lot of anger, there's a pretty good likelihood that'll be your story unless you take a hard look at it and do some work and and really chart a different course. Next chapter is maintaining genuine relationships. The data suggests after 30, we start shedding relationships. Between 30 and 45 is the most perilous time for relationships. By 45, most of us, if we're lucky, have one or two friends. Um, and I talk about the value, the importance of having deep, solid, trusted friendships. Then the idea of gratitude comes in. You know, neuroscience tells us that our brain changes when we're grateful. You know, you don't have to make a list of the bad things going on in your life, but you have to fight and give airtime to those things that are wondrous that are all around us. 
Then I talk about the, the importance of learning to forgive and what that leads to. When you forgiveness frees you. Not forgiving is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. It will paralyze and destroy you. And then serving. The idea of giving our life away. We are meant for service. We're meant to care for others, to connect. I mean, you're, you're amazing at it. I can already tell from our interactions and the way you've helped me. And then the other is defining success and failure for yourself. You know, Kipling in his great poem, If, has a great line. If you can treat success and failure both as imposters. You know, they're both as imposters. They both can really pull you down. You know, a lot of people fear failure, but success is equally perilous. Then the idea of risk. You know, on, on their deathbed, this palliative nurse named Bonnie Ware in Australia, as she listened to people on their deathbed over and over again, she said the greatest takeaway they said to her was they wish they had taken more risk in their life. You know, we should always be trying to stretch our bounds, sometime in little ways, sometime in big ways. Then I got into the integrated life, that so many of our difficulties are a result of learning to be different people. When I do business, I'm one person. When I'm in the religious setting, I'm another person. When I have my own free time, I'm another person. Wouldn't it be absolutely wonderful to be the same integrated whole where everything fits you know your life is your mission your mission is your business and all these things connect i really try to teach my mbas that that is possible and then the the the, uh last thing is just your legacy and that's um that's something that i ponder a lot from this standpoint craig i think the legacy is for others to determine uh, not for us, but it's, you know, how do you want to re- be remembered? I think of that great piece for the New York Times, my friend David Brooks did, the columnist, and he, he contrasts the difference between eulogy and your resume. Most of us spend a lifetime developing a resume, resume when the values that really matter are the eulogy values. What are people going to remember you for? There are the things we should be investing into. So there, there are some of the themes that weave in and out of these things. I guess my bottom line is, and you know, everyone's rethinking everything at this moment with the coronavirus. And I, I try to look at all these concepts, but in a very different way. I try to look at them. And, and I think the difference from what the way I came at this book, you know, I, I know a lot of these great people like Brooks and Daniel Pink and uh, Adam Grant, they're all terrific, but you know, they're conceptual thinkers. And I've had the unique advantage to actually like in the Hamilton musical, I, and when he says, I just want to be in the room, I've had the privilege of being in the room. So it's my, my insights are informed by amazing interactions with people at the highest level and the lowest level. So it's, it's been great. Well, I, I think just even listing those for our listeners is is really useful. And I think the important thing is when you're an observer, like you're saying, it doesn't matter who these people are. If you're an observer and you have an opportunity to learn from those observations, I always kind of tell people, Doug, if a camera followed you around every day and took a video and then you watch the video back at night, 
would you like what you saw? Yeah. And I think <laughs> if, you're living, if you're living your, if you're living your day um, and you're saying, Hey, I like what I saw or what I did, or yeah. I contributed or I gave back or I made some meaning in somebody's life or I said something yeah. that inspired them or changed the course of their life. That's really what's important, you know? Absolutely. So, you know, you, you, you tell a great story and this comes down to people feeling isolated and trapped and alone right now and rethinking things. And it comes down to really pondering their own death, their own demise, which you just talked about in our eulogy. It comes down to this situation between love and fear. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, are we going to love or are we going to be in fear? Right. Of this, and this was a Morgan Stanley broker, and obviously you have lots of people in that arena that you know. And you asked him a question, as you thought his job was just so great, he had so much money, and he was successful, and whatever. And he said, he said, why is it that so many successful people? Because he said he felt like he was in a prison. Now, yeah, you know, when you, you told Rockefeller about, you, you said about Rockefeller, which I thought was interesting, that he was down in a deep well being looked down right. upon. You know, yeah. this guy said the same thing. He said, I feel like I'm in a prison. Not much yeah. difference between the well or the prison. Yeah. So why yeah. is it that so many successful people who are rethinking their success feel so damn isolated, so trapped, so alone? and trying to figure out how they can break free from that. Yeah, I I I it's it's really an interesting mystery but but there are clues. And I think part of it is you know, as leaders ascend, they're so busy being busy that they don't take time to really develop in other areas. It's almost like somebody that just goes to the gym and and works on the, their right bicep all the time. And the rest is undeveloped. I think these things, you you know, we need to learn to put words to things. We need to learn how to be a friend. We need to allocate our time better so that we really do invest the things that have really much more uh, meaningful payoffs later in life. Because the payoff for most people is, is not a good one. I mean, I have a trick question I'll ask. CEO sometimes and said, what do you think the average death in America where men take their lives? And they'll say, oh, that's easy. That's, you know, teenagers or a lot of them get bipolar in their late 20s or whatever. Well, the answer is 63. And you start pondering. This came out of Gail Sheehy's work on Passages of Men, which is a great book. But um, she found when about 63, people are either where they're probably going to be financially they either sold their company or possibly are thinking of retired or exiting, and they're terrified. They don't have friends they've developed to connect with so much, so much of the time because everything has been work-related. So they mm-hmm. they really uh, they, they have just this underdeveloped area. And I think the more numbers you have, the more success. It only makes that condition worse. It's it's staggering. And I've had the privilege of being in the room and so many of these conversations asking them these questions. And I'm just astonished at how utterly lonely they are. There was an interesting study, Greg, that came out in Inc. Magazine, polled 
3,000 CEOs of large companies and asked them about, you know, how they felt about being in that position. Of the 3,000, half self-reported that they were lonely. And of the half, 67% said they're making bad decisions because they had no one they could trust. And you think Mm -hmm. that's unbelievable. These are people that are running big parts of America who are really kind of a, a crisis in slow motion, if you will. Well, you know, you think about it, no matter if you're a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Catholic or whatever, at the bottom of it, it's a loving God. And the question now becomes, you know, when you these people are feeling so isolated, are they going to be able to get in touch with whatever spiritual side is? Are they going to be able to let go of this? You know, you, you talked about succession. It's really the psychology of succession. It isn't the finance of succession. It's really the psychology of it. And, you know, yeah. Doug, you you had an interesting upbringing, and I, I thought this was very interesting in the book. You, your dad was an atheist, and early in life he introduced you to Socrates. Um, yeah. So the Socratic method of asking questions is just inherent within you because of theology. And, and the notion that the unexamined life was not worth living. So yeah. what influences did your father have on you? And did this atheist viewpoint kind of amalgamate your, I'm going to say, religious or spiritual beliefs in Jesus? Yeah. Did, did great, that great have question. any impact you're, you're on pretty good. You're, you're pretty good at this stuff, by the way. Um, so, Thank you. <laughs> um, my father grew up in a small town in Mississippi called Union. It's only a thousand people. They had a small family business. And his mother was very religious. She'd be at church all the time. And he, they had him go there, but he never really connected with it much. And he started asking questions. And at that time, that was not the most welcome thing. It was kind of the narrative that was presented in the church in those days was, you know, just believe, don't ask questions. And that was really difficult because he was a bright guy and he was really curious. So basically, he tried and failed. And by junior high, I think he just checked out and said, this isn't for me. And it just hardened over time. So basically, I I was born into a family where my father self-proclaimed that he was an atheist. Even on his deathbed, he told me that, which I found astonishing. But so it was interesting that that was the journey. It was a, a lot about ideas growing up. We talked about things that matter, but it was not about religious practice in in any form. But what happened with me, I met um, a gentleman who was running a youth group in my, uh, near the end of my junior year in high school. And he and I started having conversations about meaning, about faith. And for a year, we had these conversations. And I really started to see, Greg, the difference between institutional religion and being a follower of Jesus. And I became a follower of Jesus. But I also realized that my life story was affected. When I talk about being born into a story, you know, somebody asked me once, why do you always, wherever you are, you create a setting where people can explore what really matters? And I realized it was almost unconscious, but now I realize what I'm doing. I'm trying to create a safe place 
for people like my father who didn't have a place to explore the the deeper questions of life. And so I I I'm not judgmental at all. I try to bring people to a table where we can really talk. So I've done that from high school on at the highest level, all kinds of people. I had a group in the White House. We'd meet every Wednesday. And, you know, just constantly trying to create safe environments for people to explore. And I find the people that aren't ostensibly tagged as religious Many times privately are so hungry. It's like C.S. Lewis called it. He said, we're all seekers on some level. Yeah, that is the word, that we are seeking something. And yeah. there is more than one pa- pathway to the top of the mountain. Um, and I think that no matter what it is, if you're a Buddhist or Catholic or Hindu or Jew or whatever, right, It you know, I was brought up in a family where my mother was Jewish and my father was Catholic. So get that. Mm, I got wow, a double set a of guilt, right? But, <laughs> but that, that is a quite a combo. And and, yeah. and, 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 yeah. and you have to end up then after that kind of finding your own path, right? Because the sure, reality sure. is you come out of a situation like that and you're going to explore. And I'm, I'm like you. That's what I did. I explored. I explored. I explored. I never got the master's in theology. I got a master's in spiritual psychology. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Doug, in your chapter, now here's one where this is really interesting. You, you you know your story. We were just talking about You cite the story about Peter Buffett. I'm going to go off a little bit because a good friend of mine is, is very good friends with Peter Buffett. And he, uh, you, you tell the story. Uh, which I think is especially poignant. And my friend pointed out the same thing about Peter taking his own path. And I know mm-hmm. a lot about Peter's story because he's involved now with the Land Institute and in helping Wes Jackson fund that because of our problem with soils and the and growing crops, right? And Peter's very passionate about that. Um, yeah. So here is... Um, Warren Buffett, who says to all of his kids, guess what? You're not going to inherit the wealth. And you tell this story, and I think it's so good and so poignant. Can you tell Peter's story? Because what he's turned into, if you compare and contrast Warren Buffett to Peter Buffett, I don't think you're going to see some similarities, but maybe not a lot. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well, you know, it, it, the conversation started with Peter when he said to me one time, he said, we're all born into someone else's story. And then I said, well, whose story were you born into? And he said, here I am at Stanford, where I'm majoring in finance and business. And my father famously announced he wasn't leaving us anything. And But about three months later, my mother called and said my grandfather had died and left me some money. I think it was under $100,000. And he realized, he said, I might, maybe I have options. That day, he packed his car in Palo Alto and started driving to New York. He realized, he figured he, if he played his cards right, he could have a year or two and try to make it in the music industry, which is what his life passion was. He eventually did pretty well and ended up um, doing part of the score of Dances with Wolves and some other things. So he he had to find his story that was different than his father's. Now, the challenge for all of us, I find, 
some parents are good with that. Others aren't. It really makes them feel terrible. What? What? Are, how did I fail you, son or daughter, that you don't want to follow my steps? And I remember a kid in my class. He was from Southeast Asia. He comes, says, Professor, can I talk to you? I'm just so freaked out over this. My father won't talk to me because everyone in our family are professionals. We're engineers or doctors. And I've decided to get an MBA. And he said, I, I'm so close to my family, but he's, he just won't talk to me now. And I told him, I said, you have a choice. You can live your father's story and become a professional like they have done. Or you can live your story. Now, it might take a little bit of time before he eventually starts to see you you have what it takes to be, you know, great and thriving and you're going to be a wonderful son forever. But it might take some time to establish that. It might be awkward for a while. But I don't know if the alternative is better if you just live his story. What good is that? So I think it's so important for young people to really look at the story they're born into. What are those quiet drivers, Greg? What are, how did your family define success? How did they handle their emotions? Did you grow up in a really angry family? How did they value beauty, money? How The more you understand these things, the more you're going to understand these drivers. Is it a fear-based family? Was your family always afraid? Was it a scarcity model? You know, these are important mm-hmm. things. So once you, you know, once you get it, what your story is and what you were born into, then everything you can start pivoting. You can make other choices. You can say, well, I just don't want to be that kind of person. And this is where your spirituality and other professional help can help you if you're stuck. But the alternative is to blithely go through life living somebody else's story and to complete the Warren Buffett, Peter Buffett story. So I said, Peter. In faith traditions, there's something called the blessing, where an elder in a family says, you have what it takes. Did your father ever talk to you about music or any of that? He said, well, not really, but interestingly, years later, I was doing a gig in Omaha. I looked up, and in the back was my father, Warren Buffett, with his partner, Charlie Munger. Afterwards, my father came down, put his hand on my shoulder and said, Peter, we've both been successful in our own way. I said, Peter, you just got the blessing. You got the blessing. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that, and, and I think that, that's, that that's such a great that we story. we all long yeah. for from an elder, from a parent, that we are good enough. Well, and, and a lot of times, like you just related that story about Warren Buffett and Peter, it's not a big, long conversation. It's a recognition by the parent, like yeah. this was. He was at a concert or a gig, and he just came up and he nonchalantly mentioned, we have our success in our own way. Yeah. I think it that wasn't a big ceremony a, like a bar mitzvah. No, it isn't. It, it isn't about the big thing. hug. And, and the, exactly. And I think many times people are looking for it to be different, but they have to look to the subtleties. Uh, and yeah. many of these are subtle. And, and I can tell that you're a person that has lots of deep relationships with people. And you state that relationships are central to life. Couldn't agree with you more. Without deep relationships, you say our spirit and our bodies decline. I, again, agree with that. Yet there's little training on how to be a friend. 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, I have some totally dysfunctional friends, and sometimes I say to my wife, <laughs> "Why am I still hanging? How? Why am I still hanging out with that person? Right? What, what is it that my karma is that's attached to this person, and how am I supposed to help them? What do you believe yeah. it takes to be a good friend, to maintain a friendship, and to actually know why you're there as a friend? Now, here's an important part: we don't always know why. And sometimes we'll never know why, but yeah. we do know that, you know, I, I personally kind of, I, because of my philosophy, believe in past lives. So I'm going to say, Hey, maybe I had a karmic connection to this person in previous life. Yeah. And that's the way I can explain this away. But to me, I think it's important to know why and, and, or maybe not to know why I should say, and to know just out of compassion and love, just be there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think so much of the most important things in life involve some measure of risk, uh, Greg. And I think I think that's true with the relationship where we dare to allow someone to know our the the aspects of our life that are ri- richer. And and in my book, I talk about um, how our point of connection is often our weakness. When we show somebody that, we're shocked because we we always compare our insides with others' outside. What a mistake. Because, you know, we always think we're messed up, we're insecure, or we are this or that. And we look at others and say, oh, they've got it all together. They have the perfect family. They have the perfect this. They have the perfect that. It's just not true. And I think of a story that puts this in powerful um, context. Uh, a couple of years ago in my class, I, I, I mentioned that the first day that our point of identity with everybody in this room is not how smart you are or accomplished, but your your weakness. We all have broken pieces. This guy on the front row, Clark, says, Professor, can I say something? I've been trying to get in this class. I'm finally here, so I'm all in. He said, I've had a debilitating stutter my whole life, which caused me to live in the shadows. I had no friends, but I was very strong academically. Went off to an Ivy League college, sophomore year, decided I'm going to take my life. He's telling us this the first five minutes of class. And he says, but before I take my life, I'm going to go around to some people and sit and try to speak and just try to talk. And they're going to ridicule me because I can't put a sentence together without stuttering and hemming and hawing and no one can understand me. And But it doesn't matter because I'll never see anybody again. He says, I... Two things happened when I started to do that. One, the more I tried to speak, the better I got at it. And sentences started coming to me, and I was, like, shocked. And the second is, the more I told people about this disability and this weakness, they started telling me their issues. And for the first time, I felt connected to people. And then he paused almost like for dramatic effect. He says, Professor, guess what else? I said, what, Clark? He said, I'm the student body president of the Georgetown MBA class, and I have to give speeches all the time. And I said to the class, you know, if you, this is the, this is the whole thing. We don't have to meet again. If you learn this lesson, it will transform you because you, this is how you connect with people. Not trying to play, I'm richer than you, I'm better looking, I'm more accomplished. That gets you nobody. There's always a faster gun in the West always somebody richer, smarter, better looking. But nobody's competing to show their authentic side. 
the, the real you. And that's where I say you've got to learn in little ways to trust. And that, that changes the whole atmosphere. And it'll change if you ask your boss that about their story. You start seeing pieces of their story in there about why they're such a hard ass and why they do all this stuff. I mean, everybody's story is revealing of who they are. But it, it's hard to tell it yeah. because it, it's, it's ugly sometimes. It's not the family I wanted to be born into. It's not all this perfect stuff we want to project, but it's us. So the more real we can be, and I've found, Greg, you know, friends, they don't want you to be perfect. They want you to be authentic. People in our culture are longing for authenticity. There's so much fake stuff being promoted every place. And don't you just, aren't you drawn to the real thing? It just is amazing. Well, and as Brene Brown says, being vulnerable, I think that's important as well. Yeah. And your story reminded me of uh, the time that I actually met Leo Bascalia. You know, and he used to teach a course on love at UCLA. Oh, yeah. I remember reading his books uh, a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and it was about a girl who was in the class. And I'll relay this really quick. And he went around the room, said, anyone who's seen Marianne? No, no, no. Where is she? You know, three weeks. It was a huge lecture hall. His classes were always filled, just jam-packed. First week, second week, third week. And then finally, uh, he found out that, you know, the isolation, she had um, gone up to Malibu and driven her car off a cliff and killed herself. Oh, my. Right? And, you know, it really, it really made the class look at, hey, you're all sitting in this class coming in here. You don't even know one another. You don't even know the person next to you. You yeah. don't even haven't taken the time to make some friends with the people yeah. that sit yeah. right next to you. Yet nobody even knows anything about her. Nobody in the classroom knew anything about this girl. And I thought that was a really, really good statement. I, that is fantastic. And and for your listeners, if they talk about a practical thing, I would say, you know, at the workplace, you can do this. We do this with my team. Every week, we'll have somebody tell their story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we, we, we get them for the first time. And where I learned this one time, uh, I won't reveal names, but I got to know this family really well where the children were champion athletes on epic scales and ended up going into professional athleticism and uh i love the kids and we traveled around the world together with a a number of couples but then uh the father and i were oil and water i'm like a free spirit you know all this craziness and he was always so rigid hard-ass judgmental one time when i was going to one of the games of this one young man i walk into the uh, restaurant in the morning and there's no one in there but him and I said, oh, my gosh, he and I have to sit together and talk. <laughs> so I sit down with him, Greg, and I I, I said, I'm here. I'm going to be all in. So I said to him, I said, Bill, can you just tell me? I, I don't know your story. Tell me your story. So here's what he told me, and it transformed my view of him. He said, I grew up in a small town, and I didn't find this out till I was 39, but my father had another family in the same town, children and a wife. Two, two, I don't know how he pulled it off, but he had two of them. And he said, I always knew something was wrong. 
So I said, Bill, how did this affect you in your life? Nate looked at me and he said, Doug, all I've ever wanted in life was clarity, black and white, crystal clear, right and wrong. Boy, I finally got him. I went from judgment and not liking him to great compassion and understanding. This is what well, because you understood when we, when we understand minute, somebody's the story, it, everything changes. Yeah, the minute you understood his story, the minute you understood. So um, that was really the most important part, and I think that's the key to it. And I, what I would like to do, because I think we've we've wound around, but let's give the listeners as we wrap up this interview an opportunity. Uh, for you to give some words of wisdom about not just the book. I mean, look, your your foundation as a person, uh, your ability to provide some wisdom to our listeners is really good. Um, f- about them finding some meaning and more fulfilling life as they question, as they seek, as they ask questions of themselves and others. What kind of trajectory would you like to send this audience out on, Doug? Yeah, thanks. Let me just give you a couple pointers that I've found helpful. One is the contrast. Stop looking for happiness. Happiness is a myth. Happiness is circumstantial. I got a raise. My kids got into a good school. Meaning is much more profound. This is why Eric, um, our, um, this is why the author in Man's Search for Meaning uh, writes about in the death camps of Auschwitz, people could find meaning even though their circumstances were God-awful. That's, that's what meaning does for you. So stop chasing, chasing meaning. Second is develop a practice. Create space every day where you can think and ponder. It might be two minutes. It might be five minutes. But get still. Pascal said in Ponce's in 1611, an unfinished book, he said, the fundamental problem of a person is never learning to be alone within four walls. Well, we're being tested on that. We have to get comfortable in private space. We just clutter our mind with things and ideas and podcasts and all kind of craziness. It's all good, but too much of it doesn't allow our spirit to thrive. So we need to create some space to think. The other is Create a gratitude practice. Every day I try to write down, and I maybe do it four times a week, try to write down three or four things really specific. You don't have to make a list of the bad things, but the good things, the the gifts that God has given you and the things that have happened in your life. Little things, a, a dark roast Italian coffee today or something. Neurologists say it changes the, your brain when you do this. It's It's really something. The other I'd say is, Ponder this. Ponder who you need to forgive. It is so toxic to your health and well-being. It's not worth it. You forgive for your sake, not for their sake. We all have this mythological view that somebody's going to come up and say, oh, Doug, I'm so sorry for harming you. That will never happen. Forgive it. If it's a parent, they did the best they knew how to do. People make mistakes. Let it go. Let it go, not for their sake, but for your sake. The other is realize the best thing you can do for your family, 
for your business, for the country, is to become the best version of you. So stop trying to fix your wife or your husband or your kids or every worker you have. Fix yourself. It's almost like this great thing, G.K. Chesterton, they sent this out in the 30s to the 100 leading people in London. They asked them this question, what's wrong with the world? And they all wrote these very erudite treaties back. G.K. Chesterton sent his response back on a postcard. What's wrong with the world? And he just wrote, I am. And I think when we realize, Greg, that we're the problem, that we need to fix ourselves. The only, you know, I read this book by this eminent psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins at the end of his life. He, he said, all the things we try to instill in our children, none of it matters. I was like shocked when I read it. He said, the only thing that matters is how you live not what you said. So I would say for all of us that have this tendency to want to fix everybody and everything, to pivot and say the most important thing I can do is really look at within myself and and really become the very best version either that I can be, really bringing richness. Your kids will become meaning-filled if they see you pursuing that. But if you just tell them to do things, that's the recipe for the exact opposite. So, so there's, there are just a few, um, few things I'd say. Invest in some, some people. You know, uh, this is an awkward thing, particularly if you haven't developed friendships. Start reaching out. Start, start creating space to have a drink with somebody, have a cup of coffee, have lunch, and just try not to just talk about the weather or sports or business, but talk about what's really going on. Show somebody that vulnerable side and you might be surprised at what you'll get back. Well, the most important thing here in finding meaning, and I think you, you say it eloquently is, you know, look, as, as the time that we're all questioning because of COVID, who we are, what we're doing, this is this disruption is probably the best time in the world for you to choose a different path. Uh, yeah. Many of you out there are going to be forced to choose a different path. But what mm-hmm. I would say more than anything is don't do it with resistance. Do yeah. it with a, a surrender and an acceptance of what's That's coming great, down. I love because, I love even the words you're using because because that willingness. You know, it's funny. Uh, Richard Rohr, the monk, talks about the, ch- the only two things that change us are great pain and great love. And so, you know, it's like that former chief of staff said, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. This is a terrible thing to waste. Right. We have a chance to reposition ourselves, to reframe our whole life if we'll let this. This is a great moment if we'll let it be. It's a terrifying moment. And it's terrifying because we've all been embracing this myth of certainty that really doesn't exist. There's nothing certain. Everything is always up for grabs. I believe that God is the one certain feature in the landscape, but everything else is changing. That's the only anchor. But I think we're all, you know, you're terrified. Ambiguity makes us uncomfortable. If we knew this thing was going to be over next month or in three months or in a year, 
you could you could make decisions according. We don't know. It's like Churchill yeah. said about yeah. World War Two. Is this the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning? We don't know. We don't, but what we do know is within our own hearts how we choose to react to it. Yeah. And I think you say reactions or act. And I think the point is, is in moving forward, don't be immobilized by it. Get an action and something that's positive for you to make a change. And Doug, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. Oh, great. Thank you. Talking with our listeners about rethinking their success. You're fortunate to have a man like this who cares so much, and he's making a huge difference in the world. And thank you, Greg, for lighting the light for all of us. Well, thank you as well for putting out a book like this and for making Path North available for people who need that. And we're going to have all the links for my listeners to Doug's book, to his website, Uh, He's got a landing page coming out. We'll have that link in there as well. Uh, Doug, blessings to you, and thanks so much. Thank you so much, Greg. Bye-bye now.